Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, you're listening to PDX Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Bruton. On today's episode is a leader I've gotten to know over the past few years. Um, just happy to call him a friend, Brian August. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's get into it. Um, you are, your role here is the Chief Operating Officer for Oregon Humane Society. Yep. And you, I was here last week, you gave me a tour. I was just blown away about the, the scale of what you do here. So I wanted to kind of start there. Uh, can you just talk about what uh, your specific role is here? And then we'll get into OHS and, and all the things. Sure, absolutely. So I am the chief operating officer here. Uh, it was a new role for the Oregon Humane Society when I joined the beginning of January of 2017, January 2017. And really, my role in a nutshell is taking the visions that Sharon Harmon, our CEO, come up with and translating them into reality and keeping our operations running at the same time. So I have most most of the organization reports up through me or to me, um, including our fundraising, our operations, our medical team, um, and uh, our, our legacy giving team. As well as marketing. And how events. many folks again do you have? He's there's like, about 200 employees here. 200 employees, which is a lot more, I think, when people would realize. It's it is, and there's also there's about 3,000 active volunteers. There's 5,000 total volunteers, but some of them are episodic, meaning they'll right. come and do a, a corporate volunteering session. Mm-hmm. Um, but but 2,500 to 3,000 regularly regularly engaged volunteers that are coming, and they're involved in every aspect of our operations, whether it is Walking dogs, socializing cats, uh, some of the some of the the cleaning and feeding. Um, they also work in our development office and, and data entry. Um, they help out everywhere. We have nurses that volunteer in our surgical center and do instrument pack and prep for for our surgeries. Oh wow! Yep. Yeah. So they are they are literally involved with every aspect of this uh, of our operations. Yeah, and that's when I was here last week. Was kind of blown away. You, you pointed them out because they were different, maybe colored. Uh, the, the color of aprons here is surprisingly a, a, a I don't know if touchy subject is the right way to describe okay. it, but a point of pride. <laughs> okay, where you have, uh, for example, the, the a teal colored apron is really kind of the standard. This is if you see someone in a teal apron, they're a volunteer. Okay, but if you see a purple apron, they're a behavior modification uh, specialist. Um, or if they're in a yellow apron, they might be a, a lead dog walker. Um, or you might have the cattery has their own color aprons to, to designate. So that it's very much a point of pride for their volunteers. Is it like territorial too? Or? 
<laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> there, there are definitely cat people and dog people. I'll, I'll, I'll leave yeah. it there. And there are, there is some crossover. Actually, two of my favorite volunteers. Uh, she is all cattery all the time, and he is all dogs all the time. And and I love that they're they're married, uh, but they're they're very different people, and I think they they separate that out. Right. And and you told me last week, but how many like pets you? Uh, adopt a year or last year we did just over 11,700 adoptions wow. we are typically over the last five plus years we are between uh 11,000 and 12,000 okay adoptions. So it stays pretty much it's as... it's pretty that's pretty uh stable in terms of that we hit 12,000 adoptions in 2018 yeah um, but the goal is uh, to help as many animals as we can but do that humanely both to the animals because if you pack them in disease can spread, the animals are stressed, mm. um, as well as the staff, when you think about the number of animals they have to care for and dealing with uh, either disease you know, disease or outbreaks. Um, so we, we, we want to put that humane filter over everything we do, but there's also an obligation. You've, you've walked around, you've seen the facility. It is, it's 20 years old, but it is held up. It is built yeah. rock solid. And it is a great space for for animals to be in temporary housing until we can get them into their forever homes. And what we treat this as is an obligation to our community, but also for animals wherever they are, and um, particularly in rural parts of Oregon or Washington or mm -hmm. California, where the shelters are not as well-funded um, and they don't have the same types of facilities, we can help alleviate where they are really under a lot of stress from overcrowding we can take in animals and help them. And so wherever we can, we try to do that. Yeah, and that's another thing I was so impressed by is and the, the systems you have here. Yes. When you walk around, because, I mean, it's almost like a little city. It's a little city for dogs. It, it's a little, and cats. <laughs> right? And cats. And Sorry, rabbits. Pets. Yes, yes, and, yes. And yes. small for, animals for too. Small, so. For animals. So you, you think about what goes into like the daily life of of everything is That's here. Right. Yes. And so, you're, like I said, people roll up to you. This is your job. Um, when you stepped into it, well, okay, let's back up and talk about your. That's, that's a that's a very good analogy. When <laughs> yes. I stepped into it. <laughs> right, it is. <laughs> so let's back up. Uh, your career is interesting because it's, it's not necessarily you come from uh, this world, right? That, that I am new to the animal welfare. Yeah. Well, I'm, I've been here over three years, so okay. I am less new. Uh, to the animal welfare world, but I, I literally learn something new every day. Yeah. My my background uh, is probably not what the the average person in animal welfare comes from. Um, I before this, I was a consultant for a, a international consulting firm called Slom, who you're familiar with. Yeah, um, and I loved it, and I was leading their strategy and operations practice in the in their Portland office, um, and and it was a fantastic firm, and it was. It was a really difficult decision to to leave to come to this, and there are very few roles that I would have left for, but this was one of them. Mm. But I was doing strategy and operations consulting for large retail clients, large banking or insurance clients, um, manufacturers, and so um, they didn't hire me for my animal welfare experience. They they hired me for the systems and the processes and the people development skills. Um, that, that I bring to the table, yeah. knowing that for the right person, they can, they can teach the animal welfare things. And, um, they've, they've, they've really, uh, it's, it's been a great match. Yeah. So uh, let's, I want to talk more about that decision to leave because, you know, I'm familiar with Salam. They do great work. It really is a great people over there. Um, and this is out of that world, you know, 
uh-huh. consulting for Bigfoot wear companies that we very know about here in Portland. Was it the mission piece of it that really drove you too? I, I think it was, it was twofold. It was the mission piece and it was the opportunity to really put some things into place in terms of my own development and people's development that I really welcomed the, mm. the challenge and opportunity. The, the mission thing is an interesting one. And I'll, I'll go back. I, I worked with an insurance company when I was at Slom. And one of the interview questions I had when I moved over here was, how can you, that seems so boring or so meaningless and pointless. And m- my reflection back on that is, no, when, when you think, when you ask a person at that insurance company, they're like, look, yes, we sell a product, but the product that we sell is designed to help people when they're at their most vulnerable, when they are... Uh, uh, kind of at their wits end, they've either natural or man-made disaster, but something has happened to trigger a need to exercise insurance. And now we're able to help them. And so if you look at any company, they can frame up their mission, their vision, and what their purpose is um, as as having meaning. Yeah. And so I I don't want to, by saying I found more meaning here, doesn't mean there's not meaning in the work I did. I love Slom and I felt I had a lot of purpose and meaning with the people I worked with and with the great work we did helping clients solve problems. The meaning is different here in that animals are very near and dear to my heart, but it doesn't make this mission more valuable than anyone else's. Um, there's, There's tons of organizations with great missions. This one resonated with me and um, I really appreciate the opportunity to take the skills and experience that I developed outside of this and really bring it to bear on this mission. Yeah. And then as far as uh, I don't know if, how much you can share about the way this is kind of funded, you shared with me last week that most of it is from individual donors. Yes. Right? More than 90 percent of our funding is just from individual donors like you and I. Um, and I will be asking you for a donation for Doggy Dash. Yeah, so just so you it. know. Yeah. Um, but uh, we we do get some grant funding. We do some we get some uh, corporate funding, but it, it's a really small percentage. We get no government funding. There are no tax dollars that uh, come our way, and so everything we do, we're raising money from individuals, and uh, we'll also do it through events mm-hmm. that people will raise money for. Doggy Dash is May May 9th. May ninth at okay. uh, Tomacall Waterfront Park. Uh, dogs are welcome. Yeah. Well-socialized dogs are welcome. It, it is actually a, a truly fun event, and yeah. there's all kinds of events there, uh, all kinds of activities there. There's a dog costume contest. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, very cool. Um, so I know the, the big you know, passion of yours is leadership development. And this has got to be an interesting place because a lot of people that work here do have that passion for an, animal welfare. Yeah, And so that may be why they they came here, but they also can develop a career here, right? That's and I, right. And so um, can you talk about when you, you first got here, you, you know, implementing some more formal leadership development programs or, or things like that? Yeah, it, um, it was interesting because uh, there this is a place where you can develop a career. And there's people that have been here 20 plus years that have worked their way up from working the front desk or, or cleaning kennels. So there's people that have been here for 20 plus years and have worked their way up from cleaning kennels uh, to doing enrichment, to working in development, to, to being in leadership roles. And and we really like that. Um, and we try to provide those types of opportunities. The development that I came in and put into place really focused, well, f- focused in a few areas, but before I even got to that, I had to work on my own development. And what I've really learned over the years, and really SLOM helped solidify this for me, is um, 
you have to start with yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to do a lot of work on yourself to, uh, for several reasons. But one is if you can model that openness to growing, to developing, to taking risks in a way that meaning through relationships and dealing with conflict head on in a, in a, in a caring way, um, you can really have a big impact on people, but you can have a big impact on yourself. And it's really shifting, uh, for lack of a better term, shifting from a victim mentality to say like, what can I learn from this situation? It was unfortunate this happened or it stinks. I really feel yeah. bad about this, but what can I do? So I've worked a lot on emotional intelligence. Um, I, I have an executive coach that I've used, mm -hmm. although it gets less and less frequent as I find I'm able to, to navigate mm -hmm. and learn from situations on my own. And that's what really what I brought here was first starting with the executive team to say, if we can model that growth and development and that accountability and then the ability to really look at conflict as a positive to say, we should be having conflict around issues because how else are we going to be certain we're getting to the best outcome we can? If we are yes people and just go along with it, I, I don't think we're going to get to the best result. So how do we welcome and encourage that? But make it about the the idea, not the person. And that takes a that takes a skill set. That takes practice, and that takes a lot of commitment and motivation from the people involved. Well, I as you know, I love talking about this. So I want to break this down because I think two things that are really important, and I'm trying to do some work on myself, is that self inquiry, and mm -hmm. then how that relates to, like I said, the second part of it of fostering this culture of of kind of continuous improvement and things. So yeah. is it you did this work when you kind of stepped in this role. Had you done it before or was it always kind of like, I'm just going, going, doing my career, working and, you know, stepping back and be like, okay, I'm a, I'm a leader. I have these people on my team. These are the things I need to really dive into. Like, yeah, that's a really, really insightful question. And I don't know if I have a great answer for you. What I will say, if I've, I've always been in growth and development mode, I don't know that I had the maturity or patience early in the career to really recognize my role in it mm. and and how much of it was up to me. Um, and, and what I mean by that is sometimes early in your career, especially if you're working for a big company, which is where I started mm -hmm. uh, way back in the 90s uh, with uh, Allied Signal, which is an aerospace company, they had formal training programs right. and you got exposed to Myers-Briggs testing and those types of things. But you didn't really think about, your, it's more about checking a box and thinking about what you're doing with it. And it might be more tailored to them at the time, yeah, right? Of I, like in the nineties, like that yeah, was development yeah, and growth the path. Like, yeah. There. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I've always been curious and I, I like the way you frame that up. It's, it's developing really a curious mindset about yourself and others. Uh, and really it's law. My, I hone that because as a consultant, you don't want to insult the client. You really want to work with them. Mm -hmm. You also don't want to respond emotionally in a way that you're upset or because it, it's difficult to figure out, well, what's going on here? What are they really telling me? Is there something under the surface here? If you are reacting, um, anger, fear, sadness, excitement, whatever that is, you, you may be missing something. You may be missing an opportunity to help help your client, help a peer, help a supervisor, help a subordinate to say, how, how can I help you? How can we get this better? Or just learn more about them. And so I think starting at Slum, really stepping back and getting very deliberate about how I engage with people and really reading the situation and working on my emotional intelligence so that I could be a better partner to navigate through really difficult, hard circumstances that 
more and more through my career, I've realized it's about people. We always have issues or problems, but it usually folk these usually occur between two people. If you think about it, technical problems are usually pretty straightforward to fix. Our HVAC is failing. Well, you call our contractor right. or sometimes our staff can fix it. You fix the HVAC. You replace the compressor. You replace the belt. You replace the, the fan. Whatever it is, you can fix it. When you're having difficulties around strategy or execution, there are people on, on, the, on the ends of that. And so usually you're navigating or helping people navigate. Like what is the, how do we get together and really bat this around and get to a better outcome, knowing that we're all going to bring different talents to the table? Um, yes, we have a deadline and we have to do this, but let's not miss an opportunity to learn from this and to get better at this. Yeah, and I know you also have shared with me previously, part of that work for you was identifying some of your blind spots, right? A lot of that work is and identifying I think blind spots. Like I'm just getting, sweating to think about doing that work myself, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's hard because I think a lot of things we do is I mean, I've done Strength Finders. You is like, hey, let's yeah. focus on our strength. But there is importance in finding those spots and just being you know, maybe not drilling down so much on them, but just being aware of them, right? I, I think that's right. Is it, and you know, there's a when you develop that curious mindset, you can look at those blind spots. Not it's not about weaknesses. It's saying like these. This is not intuitive to me. And and I'll, I'll let me use emotional intelligence as a as a um, example. So I my emotional intelligence around myself is quite high. And, and I, but I've worked on it. Like I usually know what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. If I'm feeling afraid. I'm pretty good at saying it's probably because I'm missing a piece of information. So it's not about the other person. It's like, I'm missing something. What do I need to do to get me out of fear and a little bit more comfortable so I can I can navigate with this, with this other person right. more productively? When it comes to, though, reading the other person, I, that's, a, that's a blind side. I, I'm terrible at it. I, I really, I don't. I really struggle to pick up on the tenor or if someone's leaning back or if I'm maybe coming in too strong on questioning them about a project, I have trouble picking that up. And that's a blind spot. And it's not, it's not really a weakness. It's just something I need to be aware of. So sometimes I'll use, if I know there's someone in the room that's really good at picking up on something, I might key in just on them to see how are they dealing with this? And that gives me kind of the pulse of the room. And with strength finders, the same way, or just our strengths or talents uh, in general is, you, the blind spots are just there so that we can leverage others that might have more talent in there to say, look, I I usually miss this. So I would love if you kind of help get things back on a positive track if you see me going in that direction. And that vulnerability is it has nothing to do with your confidence as a leader or that you are the right person in the right role. But it is saying, like, I can't do this by myself and I'm not always going to get it right. So how can you help me? And as a leader, it is so critical to be able to model that vulnerability because what you're really doing is creating that safe space so that others are not feeling like they always have to be invincible. They always have to have the right answer because they're not. And um, so giving that safe space so they can be vulnerable, so they can grow and develop and someday become the leader that's coaching and developing others. That's a huge unlock. And I think when I first got in the workforce, and I was you know 22, I worked for a bigger company. That wasn't really the mindset of traditional <laughs> leadership. It's like they're not showing their vulnerability, yeah. right? And I think as that changed, uh, as been changing, um, I think it's like I said, it's just a huge unlock for the leader, for the teams. But do you think that makes a difference for the, the younger people that are getting in the workforce now? They just expect that, or hmm. I don't know. Like that's a that's a 
another insightful question. You're really good at this. <laughs> I try. <laughs> but, but that's a really good question because it, um, you, you, right now you're, we're at a point where, what well, we have four generations in the workplace. Yeah. Which, which is, and they all have different things about them. I could go old school and say in the nineties when I worked at an aerospace company and then at, at uh, Gallo wines, a small winery in California, <laughs> um, it, uh, it, it was not, that was not the expectation. The expectation is very much command and control. Right. But, and you just earn your stripes. And I think you're right. I think there's today's generation. I should, I should say, actually, I think all the generations like that's, less of a thing now. And it's more about recognizing talent where you have it and developing and growing it. Um, so I, I think some of it's because of the generational change. Um, but I think there's still that that value, whether it is working with someone who's in their 60s, who you know, comes from a different generation even than me. I'm, I'm assuming that's not, I think I'm Gen X. Okay. I'm, I'm 49. Okay. Uh, but I'm not sure where that puts someone who's 60. But if that's a boomer or not. But so you have you have that generation in their 60s. You have my generation. You have Gen Y, Gen Z. I, it's um, confusing, but yeah, very confusing. Yeah, yeah. But for all of them, is someone interested in my development? Is someone holding me accountable uh, in terms of what I'm doing to develop and grow myself? Um, and is someone giving me the freedom to do that? Um, and someone hearing me and hearing what I want to do or how I want to grow and develop, I think that crosses generations. I don't. I I think probably every generation. I'm sure when I was first starting in 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 the workplace, like they looked at Generation X and said, "Oh, what a what a what a bunch of whiners and <laughs> yeah. title." Because you know when I went to school, I had to walk in yeah, the snow, that, right. uphill both ways. So I, I I think there's something universal about that growth and development and. It is finding the way that the individual wants to do that that's so critical for it to, to be successful. But holding the cattle, you if you want to be here, you are going to have to grow and develop. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what that looks like is really determined by you because it's not about me wanting you to grow and develop. It's what you want to do to grow and develop. And, and the, uh, I would think the challenging thing is balancing that your leader to your team, but for yourself too. It is really challenging. Right. And, you know, the biggest challenge is probably pace. Um, for me, I read a lot of books mm-hmm. and I talk to a lot of people about development and growth. And I, and I have to recognize when I'm when I have the, the newest thing that I've read, I'm like, I totally want to try this. This will be so cool. I have to be cognizant that there are people that that are moving at a, a more deliberate pace mm-hmm. and it's not bad or good. It's that's their pace. So for me to to shove something down or to say, this is what we're doing now. I have to be very cognizant of how is this, how is this going to help this person grow or develop? Are they ready to receive that? And, um, but they have to grow and develop, but they don't have to do it in my way. And so that is really hard because now you're kind of working on your own development and growth, Mm -hmm. but you can't lose sight of, you need your people to grow and develop. And then for me, really the equation switched when I first came here was much more about myself first to model for the executive team and, and to bring them along and to realize there's certain things that I tried that didn't work for me. I'm like, well, then I'm not definitely not going to try it for them. Sure. Um, but And then transition them from more of working on our growth and development as an executive team to say, now, how are you going to take this and become a coach and mentor for your teams? Mm-hmm. And what I've started to see, this is year three plus of this, is now we have uh, 
we'll call it two clicks down, but we have our managers going out in the organization and learning how to be that 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 coach. And the thing about doing this is it inevitably helps your own growth and development when you're helping others and coaching them because you start to see the you start to see things in a different way that it's not all about you. And that in and of itself is a learning and growth and development Absolutely. for you. Yeah. And I love how deliberate you've been about that part of it. Yeah. Um, well, a couple more areas I want to cover. I mean, getting back to Oregon Humane Society, what's kind of next for the organization ah. growth wise, just in the community in, in Portland? Yeah. Well, it's, it, it is really exciting to be here now at this time in our history. Um, we are in the midst of a capital campaign. We are doing an almost $40 million expansion of our campus. And that's a physical aspect of it. But really what we're trying to address are some needs in the community uh, that have changed since this this uh, organization was founded 151 okay. years ago. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. We've been around. We are nine years younger than the state of Oregon. So we've been around quite some time. Um, and what we've looked at, what we're always trying to do is stay on the forefront of what the community needs. And when you look at the needs of the community, we do low-cost spaying and neutering. But in general, we don't have a pet overpopulation here. There's a coalition of Portland animal shelters uh, call, called ASAP. And okay. uh, essentially, though, what what uh, we realized back around 2010, I mean, a little bit earlier, is that you need a coalition of community partners to make sure that no healthy, treatable pets are euthanized in the community. And we've accomplished that. Mm. There hasn't been a healthy pet uh, euthanized in the community for space needs for Years and years and years, oh, okay. um, which is great. It's a great outcome. Yeah. So when you think about animals that are here, or Multnomah County Animal Services, or Washington County, or Cat Adoption Team, or any of those uh, Humane Society Southwest Washington, any of those organizations, those animals are going to go home to a family. I think that's kind of might be a misconception. And I'm glad you brought it up yeah. because you know you hear this term out there not to. Um, you know, we tried about it, but like no kill shelters and kill yeah. shelters. That just sounds like it doesn't exist really it, in, in, here. Locally. Here it's it like, doesn't. Um, like every, they're going to find a home. And, they're they're going to yeah. find a home. They're going to be okay. We work with behaviorally challenged animals. We work with medically fragile animals. Um, and the interesting thing is the expansion that we're doing is, is around really four areas. And, and the, but the anchor point is a community teaching hospital that we're going to be building that's going to be able to provide uh, subsidized and low, low or no cost care mm. for members of the community for, sorry, for the animals or the pets of members of the community. Yeah. Um, and really what that's about is if you think about access to care from a human side, access to medical care, it's a really challenging proposition in that, um, it's really expensive, even with health insurance, which is expensive in itself with copays and deductibles and that type of thing. It is really expensive. And you see a lot of people deferring just kind of primary care, yeah. which can lead to more complicated problems later. With animals, that same problem exists where if, I think there was a study done, it's in the last year or two, where a lot, a, a large majority of the population across the US, if they had an emergency situation came up that took more than $400 yeah, to yeah. address, which if you've been to the vet, it can easily run that sure. much for an emergency. Um, they wouldn't be able to do it, or they'd have to sell something to do it, or take out a loan, or, mm -hmm. or, or put on their credit card and pay it off over time. Right. What we want to do is make sure that animals in the community, the pets of the people in the community, um, that that is not a barrier to receiving basic care and uh, basic and, and some advanced care, because the animals that are suffering, like if, if an animal has an abscess tooth, they're going to be in incredible pain. But there's there's not many ways they can vocalize it. Animals tend to be 
pretty stoic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we want to make sure is the community has access to this as, a, as an alternative to say, hey, come here, we'll work with your situation, and we'll be able to get uh, care for your animals. And you're doing that a little bit already, but it's just expanding it, right? We are doing it through sp- low-cost spay and neutering, yeah. a little bit of wellness, but we're our, our as you saw, our medical center now yeah. is pretty maxed out. Yeah. Just I, We had about 13,000 procedures surgically done last year in our medical center, and uh, most of those are spay neuters for the community and then our own pets that we're bringing up from California or from rural Oregon or right. Washington that are not spayed or neutered. And we will not adopt something out unless it's been spayed or neutered. So, uh, yeah. And I, I'm going to say like the consultant side of you just got to be like, you could just totally walk out on it's almost you're starting this new business almost right it, in a way. It, it really is. And, and, <laughs> and, and it's, you know, we're, it is a business cause we're going to in, in certain aspects, meaning it'll be, mixed income service, meaning mm-hmm. some people will come in and pay full price, but a, a large percentage of the people coming in, we expect to be able to do either low or, or yeah. no cost care. And that also gives veterinarians in the community a resource. Like Veterinarians do a great job in the community and they try to give away as much care as they can yeah. when people truly can't afford to yeah. help their pet. Veterinarians wanna help yeah. animals. And so we're gonna be another option for them to, to say, hey, you could try Oregon Humane Society. Dove Lewis, by the way, also does a, a phenomenal job, mm-hmm. but all the veterinarians do a great job of this. But there's just more demand than they could possibly okay. service in terms of that uh, uh, subsidized care for animals. And, yeah, and I was going to ask, I mean, how, are, are there partnerships to do this? Or how does that side of the fence, the veterinary community, look at you expanding? It's like, hey, hey, hey. Or, <laughs> or is it like you said, there's so much demand that it's like, thank you. It's like, it's a mix. There are some that are like, this is a threat to our business. And and and, and I understand, um, uh, it, you know, opening up a, a, a rather large operation to do this, it can be, but it's, you know, the, our purpose is not to compete. Our purpose is to really provide another option. And there are right. a number of veterinarians and we're trying to be transparent and to bring them along and, and to yeah. take their input to say like, this is what we're going to do, okay. but as a resource. Hmm. Um, and just Try to be open and transparent. And when you look at the number of pets in the Portland metro area, the number of veterinarians, like the the, the math doesn't work out. So there really aren't uh, enough. Okay. Okay. Um, we're trying to help that situation through the hospital, but also we have a partnership with Oregon State University. I'm sorry that I know you're a duck fan, but uh, well, my sister-in-law is a yeah, I told you a vet student at yeah. Oregon State. So yes, I'm still a duck, fan and you though. still <laughs> and you still talk to her. Yes, yeah, okay, yeah, it's, it's all good. Yeah, but. so we tra- we actually a lot of people don't know. I think you saw is we train every fourth year Oregon State vet student comes through here right. and actually does a three week stint here. And uh, you know the nice thing about that is before uh, this program existed, which I think was the first in the country, Oregon. Humane Society led the wow. way with that with Oregon State. But before they would come out with four or five procedures on their belt, now they're coming out with 50 oh my procedures or so yeah. under their belts. Yeah. They're much more practice ready. So we're yeah. trying to we're trying to address the the access to care for us, for other veterinarians are gonna hire you know someone out of Oregon mm. State. Mm. Um I, I should also mention the other parts of the program when we talked about the expansion is uh, we have a uh, an investigations department here that a lot of people aren't familiar with, but we actually have commissioned and arms uh, police officers that go out and their only charge is to enforce uh, cruelty and neglect laws against animals across the state of Oregon. Um, as part of that, we do forensic exams on both live and deceased animals. Okay. And so we're building a dedicated forensic center so that we can collect evidence and be able, these are, this is evidence that wow. is uh, presented at trial. 
uh, when we when we bring charges or local DAs bring charges, we have the ability to we have specially trained veterinarians and really experienced staff that can look at this and say, cause a death for death for this animal or the starvation of this animal was was not related to any underlying medical condition. It was just due to lack of food. So yeah. we are creating a center that's dedicated to do that, that will be able to service across the state of Oregon and probably beyond the borders of we can do this specialized work. Right. And I know you're going through a capital campaign for that right now. What's kind of the, the runway to have this completed? Yeah. Well, so uh, before I answer that, there uh, two more things we're doing is a behavior uh, rehabilitation and rescue center. Uh, we do behavior modification okay. of, of dogs or cats that may have socialization issues. They may, they may have fear, um, maybe a little bit shut down. We actually have staff that are specially trained that can work with them and get them ready to, to be in homes. Mm. Whereas before there wasn't really an option for them, which is, we love that. Mm -hmm. And then a dedicated rescue center. So when our investigation teams go out and maybe they bust a puppy mill or something, we have a dedicated, secure, safe space where we can bring the animals in and, and hold them for an extended period. Or uh, for example, if there's a, a natural man-made disaster, so take the Eagle Creek fire, mm -hmm. we were ready with a, a warehouse we have to house animals from Multnomah County Animal Services, which oh, was wow. only a block from the evacuation zone okay. out in Troutdale. Wow. When that was going on, we were like, we're ready. We have the kennel set up. If you need us, we're here. So That's as amazing. a resource to the community. So we're, we're building a dedicated center that allows us to do that better. In terms of the schedule, we're actually going to be breaking ground this September um, and we expect we will be completing uh, the project in terms of building by the beginning of 2022. Exciting. It is super exciting. Yeah. And while it sounds really far away to most people, I'm like, oh my God, we have <laughs> yeah, so much to do <laughs> yeah, yeah. between now and then. Yeah, that's really not, yeah. I mean, long. So, yeah. right. Uh, well, I always like to wrap up talking about one of my favorite topics is just Portland in general. And you sure. have a unique, in, in regards to business, you have such a unique um, lens of it because working as you know, consultant and going to businesses, seeing their problems that uh, they need help with, and then you know being here. So, how long have you been in Portland again? Well, this is my second stint here. Uh, so it's been eight years okay. that I've been here the second time around. Okay, and but you, you, like I so said, you lived here before. I lived. I've lived here before. So you've seen it grow in regards to like you know our economy and stuff. What's your thoughts on the growth here and good and, and challenges? <laughs> um. Yeah, the, I mean, the good is um, there's more people moving in the community. From a from an OHS perspective, they're adopting, they're supportive. There are people coming in the community saying they value what we provide to the community. And I, and I love that. And for me, I, I would love to have Portland become a more diverse community. We're, we're just not. And yeah. that manifests itself in, in ways when you're recruiting people or when you're looking at your board of directors and trying to get a, a diverse uh, set on there. And so for me, there's there's only good that comes out of adding diversity. And I think bringing population in is, is the mm -hmm. best way to add that diversity. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that. Um, it does bring certain challenges. Um, we've all had experience with homeless uh, situations, right. tents, uh, cars. And because we're in an industrial area, we really get hit with this a lot. And, and the challenge is this, you have the normal things. And I know I've listened to all your podcasts, big oh, thank fan. You. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, people have talked about the traffic. So I, yeah. I won't go through that. That's obviously a challenge being on Columbia Boulevard is kind of the traffic and development. And we're bringing more and more. We have over 130,000 visitors a year to wow. here. So you think about, yeah, I don't know how it was for you getting here on Columbia Boulevard, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's a very busy street with a lot of truck sure. traffic. The homeless situation is 
is a hard one because it it's it doesn't lend itself to a very binary solution. Um, we are compassionate people. That's why we are here. Um, we're compassionate because often you have homeless people that also have pets, and we are we're compassionate to the people. We're compassionate to their companions. But we also run into issues where we might have a homeless that are in the industrial area that are next to our property. Um, we've had we've had people go over our fence and basically plug into our electricity oh and gosh, take that. Yeah. And and you so you try to be compassionate, and then you call the police, and the police are like, yeah, there. Are, we can get that off, but they're on a public street, so we can't really do anything. And, you know, you, you think of beyond the just getting them away or just cleaning up to say, like, wow, these are they're really facing a lot of challenges. What are some of the system, uh, kind of systemic underlying issues that would need to happen to work on this? And so that's been a, a huge fascination for me. Um, in fact, I, I, I went down on Saturday uh, with uh, my college group, em Emory University, and volunteered at Blanchet House. Mm. Just to, for me, it's it, it's that curiosity and that growth mindset come, just to bring everything full circle, right. saying like, there, there's something I'm not getting here. And just to get some experience and exposure to that population and like what their challenges are, which are immense, and and you know how how this works. And it, it comes back to what we're doing with the New Road Ahead and understanding um, the cycle of call it poverty for lack yeah. of a better term, but and understanding that it's it's not a static condition; it is fluid. People move in of it, into it. People move out of it, depending on their circumstances. And so, I think that's still a challenge that not only Portland, I think a lot of cities, particularly on the West Coast, just haven't got their arms around is how do we stay true to our values um, of being compassionate, caring, open-minded. What we pride ourselves on as Portlanders. It's like we are a welcoming community. Right. But we have this challenge and it's really getting difficult to be welcoming when you're dealing with some of the the other things that go along with it, with the trash, the needles, yeah. the theft and whatever else. And I don't have an answer for you. I just know that's a challenge that um, is probably going to take some time to address. And it's probably going to take a lot of smart people and a lot of dedicated and committed people. Yeah. Getting I together, think we have here. I do think we have. I think. I think. I don't know how you pull that together in a in a unified way, because um, I also don't know that there's one solution. I think there are many things that would have to happen to start working on it, and I don't think it'll be a, an instant fix. I think it is one of those things that this is a hard problem, and it's it's probably going to be a hard road to get to a better place. It's so complex. Yeah, and you, you have the different voices in you know, business and community, and just. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a challenge, but like, like you said, getting back to our values, I think the, the intent we have, yeah, will hopefully be on the right road. And we so, yeah. and we have to hold on to that. And that's whether whether we're talking about that or an organization and development, everything we're doing, we got you got to hold on to those values because that's got, that's the I find when you're out of alignment with your values, that's that's when you you feel off, you feel discouraged, maybe a little sad. And um, so that's usually what I use as an anchor point. And it's no different when talking about Portland communities. I do want to leave with a sense of optimism, though. It's like, I think those values are also our way to, to start addressing this, is don't lose sight of the values. So how do we address this in a way that is still true to our values, but doesn't shy away from the conflict or the issue to say, how do we, how do we argue or how do we get it around a table and bang out some ideas around this issue um, in a way that is true to our values. And that, for me, I think Portland can do that better than any place else in the world. 
I'm 100% agree with you. I'm an internal optimist about where we live and just the opportunities we have. So thanks for all the work you do. And thanks for being on, Brian. Thank you for coming, Dan. I, re I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.